At our at our table this morning, at our table, somebody said, "You know, it's a it's a good day." And another man said, "Yeah, another day above ground." That's about the size of it. Yeah, just another day above ground. Well, okay. And those of you uh, who have not yet signed up for the retreat, we've been hounding you now for two months. Do you think we're trying to make a point? We'd love to have you there. So if you haven't signed up, let me tell you, it's not too late. Uh, it's really not. How do you do that? You sign up back there uh, before you leave today. We'd still love to have you for all or part of it. Come join us uh, tomorrow, tomorrow night. We're going to have fun. And we're going to be talking about a very important topic, the good life. What is a good life? How do you live it? Well, we're going to talk about that in today's world. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. And we'll pick up where we left off last week, which was at verse 12. And we saw in the first 11 chapters, Habakkuk is asking a really important question. And I'm glad he asked it because he got a really great answer, a surprising, shocking answer, which leads to another question, which is one that we often ask. We probably ask this second question more often than we ask Habakkuk's first question. The first question was, Lord... What are you going to do about all this evil in the church or all this evil in the nation? Aren't you going to do something about this? Isn't this in your face? Doesn't this get to you, Lord? Why are you hanging around not doing anything? He says in verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? And the answer Habakkuk gets just really takes him off his feet. The answer is, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to send those bloodthirsty Babylonians (laughs) to ransack you. And they knew about the Babylonians. They knew how wicked they were. The Assyrians were perhaps even more wicked, but the Babylonians were very wicked, as we described last week. And Habakkuk is saying, hang on just a minute, Lord, now uh, let's let's look at this. And we're going to see in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 11, uh, or verse 12, that Habakkuk then raises some further questions. And these are questions that I think probably are more common to us because one of the most common thing that happens when we suffer any kind of disappointment, whether it's a financial disaster or whether it's uh, the loss of somebody that we really love or whether it's our own health, we get a diagnosis that just kind of takes your breath away, uh, we, we begin to ask the question, you know, why? It just doesn't seem to make sense to us because we know God is on his throne. We know that he's good. We know that we belong to him. Why does this happen to me? It, it doesn't fit. If God is good and he's all-powerful and I'm his kid, why shouldn't I have a right to expect good things to happen in my life? And this thing that's happened to me is not good. And you have several choices. Number one, you can say, you know what? Uh, my faith was misplaced. God is really not good if there is a God at all. And I've seen men who had made a profession of faith walk away because the trial they were going through basically so discouraged them, they thought there couldn't possibly be a God who would do this. I just refused to believe in a God who would take my child. And I've been in that house worshiping him, in that church house, worshiping him for years. And this is the response I get. I just don't think he is. And if he is, he's not worth worshiping. That's the way I feel about it. I've seen men do that. That's one choice. Second choice is to say, 
look, I know God is, but I probably haven't completely understood the way the power thing works. Uh, because probably what's really happening here is that God really does love me and He really is good, but He so set things up in this universe that He doesn't control everything. He doesn't control evil. He doesn't, He's not into that business. And He hurts with me. And uh, He has decided to keep hands off certain things and leaves it up to me and to human causation and to natural causation. God doesn't cause earthquakes and, and storms and, and death and cancer. And uh, as uh, Rabbi Kushner said in his book, Why Good Things Happen to Bad... <laughs> no, the other way around. Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Actually, we ought to be asking the question, why good things happen to bad people. That's a really more difficult question to ask. Uh, but the question that we always ask is, why do bad things happen to good people? And Kushner says, in kind of the climax of his treatment, you really have to learn to forgive God. Uh, there are some things that, that even God can't do. Because he's so designed the universe that way. So that's the second option is that we we start tinkering a little bit with our theology so that it, it fits. Now, I say it fits. Fits around what? Fits around this, that you're a good person. And that if, if God really were able to control everything and decided that he would control everything, he would protect you from all those evils and harms and dangers. That's the way you design it around you. <laughs> So you have two options so far. One is to abandon the idea of God, or at least the idea of a good God. The second is to rearrange your theology so that it fits you, so that you're still justified as a person who really, by justice, ought to be dealt with kindly. And so you shape a God who will fit around that organizing principle. That's the way most people do their theology. It's from the self up. It's not from the top down. Now, Habakkuk doesn't do either one of those things. He's got a huge question. Why would God discipline his own people with one of the most wicked nations in the history of the world? Why would God do that? And he could have said, well, there isn't a God. Or he could have said, well, God can't help himself because even God allows historical uh, sequence just to take place according to human causation. Habakkuk didn't do that. You're going to see that Habakkuk hangs on to two things about God that create this theological problem. He hangs on to the idea that God is an everlasting God who controls all of history. He doesn't surrender that. That's one of the stakes in the ground for for Habakkuk. Second stake in the ground is that God is holy. He cannot tolerate wrong. He does not even look upon evil. God is, there is no shadow of turning in him. There is no shadow of darkness in him. There is nothing evil in him at all. Unlike the Muslim Allah, he is not shrewd. He is holy. And everything is always perfectly good. He drives that stake in the ground. So he's got two stakes in the ground. He's got himself a big problem. Because now he's got a God who is, he says is holy and is sovereign, and Habakkuk's got big problems on his hands. He's got a wicked nation coming in to rip off his family, his friends, to kill the women, and, and to rip their wombs out and, and behead the fetuses in their wombs. He's got big problems, if that's the kind of God he believes in. And that's the problem that's raised by God's first answer to Habakkuk's first question which is, God, what are you going to do about the evil in society? God, what are you going to do about the evil in the church? And God gives him an answer that creates a whole lot more problems for Habakkuk. But rather than allowing the temptation to reshape God 
or to abandon God, Habakkuk presses through the problem. And I want to suggest that's the best way for you to do it too. And that the gift that God gives us called faith is a gift that enables you to press through, drive your stakes in the ground about who God is from his word, and then continue to look for the most mysterious answers that God can give us. So you don't change God's character to make your life make sense. You stick with God's character and change the way you're thinking about making sense out of your life. And very few people do that. They would rather surrender God's character than starting with themselves and their own comfort and convenience. Habakkuk refuses to do that, but it creates huge problems. The one who has the most problems with evil in the world is the Christian theist, as we saw last time. The Buddhist has an answer. The secularist has an answer. The atheist has an answer. It's a lot easier. It's the Christian theist who's got the problem because we've got a sovereign God who is always holy, without exception. So how do you explain this? Well, let's look at what happens then when uh, Habakkuk lodges his second complaint. Look at verse 12 and verse 1. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. You see, in the very first two lines of this section, you get two things about God. He's from everlasting. He's the eternal God. Secondly, He's holy. So Habakkuk is having those things about God questioned in his mind. And he's, he's saying, is this not true about you, God? Because he's confounded. Some people say that this book represents a weak faith. I would say, no, it doesn't rec- represent a weak faith. It represents a confounded, challenged faith. It represents the faith of a man who's in great suffering. So I don't think it's a weak faith. Actually, I think it's a strong faith. For that, those two lines right there, there's faith. I believe in God. And I believe in God the way he revealed himself. And now I'm going to be confounded. Fine, be confounded. But don't change your theology. O Lord, you have appointed them, that is the Babylonians, to execute judgment. O rock. And rock would signify a God who always protects his people. He's the fortress. He's the defender. So explain this. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. It's almost still a question. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so... He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Now, look look and see here what he's actually saying. In verse 14 through 17, he's using an analogy of the fisherman catching fish with his net. And the Babylonians were known to be fishermen. Obviously, they were over in Iraq, in that area. They were right on the sea there. And they were known to be fishermen. They were good fishermen. You find lots of symbolism in Babylonian symbology with fishing. And they use that analogy to describe their military. 
that their military is just fishing out there, picking up slaves wherever they go and eating them, devouring them, using them for their own means. And Habakkuk is saying, God, with your plan, it looks like you have turned human beings into something like fish. We've lost our human dignity. It's as though we have no ruler whatsoever. And you're allowing these wicked people to come in and just fish us like we were fish, like we're not human beings. And this doesn't seem right to me, he says. And furthermore, God, these people, these wicked people who are the slave owners, these people who are the slave gatherers, these people who are the conquerors and wicked and destroying people, they take the instruments of their fishing, their swords, and they treat them like gods and they bow down and worship them. Please explain to me, God, how you can be everlasting and holy at the same time. I remember, for the, I remember some years ago I was reading Professor James Cone, who's a very well-known African-American theologian. And uh, Professor Cone said, the problem, he said, the problem for black theology, if you want to know what black theology is, African-American theology, he said, the problem for black theology is how can the God of the Bible be the same God who allows slavery. He said, that's the problem black theology seeks to solve. That's a really wonderful problem to try to solve. And what we're going to see is that Habakkuk gives the answer for black theology. And he gives the answer for white theology. Because we're asking the same thing. And that's what Habakkuk's asking. These wicked people are devouring us and then worshiping the means of their own warfare. It's ridiculous. Is he to keep on, he says in verse 17, emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy, absolutely ransacking the world? Now, look at verses one, uh, verse 1. So Habakkuk lodges his question, and then he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Or the word complaint you see in your footnote there says it could be uh, to answer when I am rebuked. And the word complaint there really is the word for rebuke. Now, we could look in Isaiah and some other places and you'll see this same Hebrew word is used for the nations to be rebuked. And... Uh, Habakkuk was used to the word rebuke being used for God against the nations. He had forgotten that it was also used in the Pentateuch for God's rebuke of his own people. And we usually do forget that. That he, he can complain or rebuke his own people vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the nations. So Habakkuk said, and what, I'm answer, what, I'm, uh, what answer I am to give to this rebuke. So Habakkuk says, God, there's my problem. I've stated who you are, and I've compared that with what you're doing. And I'm just going to wait. You give me an answer. <laughs> you ever felt that way? I talked to a, a man one time, a very fine Christian. He was, in, he was overseas, actually, where I met him. He was teaching in a seminary overseas. And uh, he was a Canadian. 
And he said that uh, he had a Christian family. He had known the Lord since his youth. He had followed him faithfully, not perfectly, but had been followed the Lord all of his life. And he told me the tragedy in his life when his 18-year-old son was killed in an automobile accident. He said, I just went through for months and months and months just saying, why, why, why? That's what Habakkuk is doing. He's deeply hurt, deeply challenged, profoundly confounded, and he's waiting now for an answer. Let's look at what we learn in this first part that we've just seen. God's answers often raise more questions than they answer. And so he answered about the wickedness in the church and how he's going to deal with it, but he raised a whole lot more questions by it. It raises questions about his promises to us. We will not die or it could be translated, we will not die, will we? <laughs> uh, in other words, he's reminding himself of a promise. God, you are our rock. You are going to protect us, aren't you? In verse 12, uh, he says, uh, my God, my Holy One. See how it uses a possessive pronoun there. My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Uh, we'll still be above ground. <laughs> Didn't you promise that you'd take care of us? So God's performance in this world, brings into question whether he really is going to keep his promises to you. Let's face it, that's true. Those questions cross your mind. Why, why, why? Secondly, doesn't he solve evil with more evil? In verse 12b, is that, is that the way you do it? You've appointed the Babylonians. You've ordained them to punish us. Is that, the, is that righteous, that you would use evil to punish evil? Don't quite get that, we say. Doesn't he contradict his own character? In verse 13, this, this famous verse, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent? So is he tolerant and silent? Is this the kind of God uh, that we're facing? All these questions come. Because Habakkuk has driven two stakes in the ground. God is sovereign and everlasting, and God is holy. He drove those two stakes in the ground, and that produces all these questions. Now, if you didn't drive those two stakes in the ground, you don't have these questions. Because there is no God, so why should you think he's holy or, or everlasting? He doesn't exist. Or God is not powerful. He, he's not everlasting. He's not sovereign. We were just singing, oh, Father, you are sovereign. But if you say he's not sovereign, you don't have, you don't have Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk's questions only come because of his commitment to God's character. Does he empower false religion? Is this his strategy? He's going <laughs> to show that really the pagan religion is superior to Judah's religion? Look, we know Judah's bad. We know the church is sinful. But are you going to show us that some other religion is better than the religion of your own people, God? You know, we do this all the time. I remember when one of my sons was playing basketball for a Christian school. Uh, and, you know, we'd, we'd play other types of schools. And so we'd always make jokes. Okay, God loves the pagans more than the Christians today. <laughs> or even in denominational things, you know, when we pay the Catholics. Oh, so God really does love the Catholics more than the Protestants. Okay, yeah. Or the Campbellites, you know, the Christian church. Oh, so God is a Campbellite. Yeah. And I, I heard about a fundamentalist college. Uh, their basketball team lost a game, and the coach got them in the locker room and said, okay, there's sin in the camp. You know, got to repent. That's the real thing. It's not the basketball game. We've got to repent. Somebody's sinning here. Yeah, we do that all the time. We think God is like, you know, 
a heavenly policeman. He, he immediately, in this time and space, orders, he, he, he rewards good behavior and he punishes bad behavior. And that's the reason we pray before the football game, oh, God, help me to win. And uh, the reason we're trying to be good so that we can get good gifts from Santa Claus. I mean, everything is cause and effect. we got all figured. you got your universe figured out. And surely God is going to be good to the righteous and the people who have good theology. You know, the Roman Catholics think that about themselves. The Protestants think that about themselves. And everybody else does about themselves. We are the ones that surely God would favor. That's the way our theology works. Does he empower false religion? You see, we're asking that question too. Does he empower evil nations? Does he, did he really want the Soviet Union to win? Did he really want the Nazis to win? What if the Nazis had conquered the world? What would have happened to your, to your God and your theology? You know, it's a good question to ask. 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. More lives taken by violence in the 20th century than all those centuries before added up together. Horrible century in many ways, but then you look at the end of it, and it looks like we won. Our God won. The God of the American way, the apple pie and motherhood. Uh, you know, the Marxists were defeated. And, you know, the evil axis of powers defeated. Of course, we find they, just, they just keep coming out of the woodwork, don't they? <laughs> but there's some centuries when it doesn't appear that way at all. It appears as though the other side won. And so we are stuck with the question, even on a larger scale, not just my personal life, but a larger scale, what is really going on in the world? And that is what was happening to a back. His whole world was falling apart. The bad guys were winning, not the good guys. And so he says to God in verse 17, are you going to empower the wicked? So really what he's asking, this boils down to about three questions. He's asking, first of all, how can the faithful people go on, God, if you treat us like this? He's really wondering if if. We can carry on if this is the way God's going to behave. You know, if God can't clean up his act, how does he expect us to follow him? And secondly, he's, going to, he's asking the question, how can God's reputation stand up in the world if Babylon prospers? I mean, God, I'm really concerned about your reputation. You know, if you allow evil to prosper in my life and all these people who know that I'm a believer and I'm a follower of you and they watch my whole life disintegrate, God, no, really, what's going to happen to your reputation? Everybody knows your name is on me. So what's going to happen to you? And thirdly, how can God stand up to Babylon's idols? If this is so, how is God going to get religion straight in the world? <laughs> so we, we have all these questions we've got for God. Now, we find in this first verse that we must wait patiently for his answers. This is a key to the entire book. When Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. He will look to see what he will say to me. That is a key. So I suggest Habakkuk's not standing like this. Habakkuk's standing like this. God, I'm looking to you. So the key to getting the answer here, gentlemen, drive the stakes down as to what you know. God is sovereign. God is good. And then ask him and look to him for answers. And we look to his word for answers. And we're going to find that Habakkuk does get some answers. First of all, we must stand at our watch. That means 
You obey Him. You stand and watch. You do what you're supposed to do. You don't have any excuses in the meanwhile while you're looking for answers to go out and carouse with the women. Go out and get yourself real good and soused. Uh, just, you know, tie one on. That'll help you feel better. You don't have any, any right to do that. Uh, you don't go out and, and chase some other god. Uh, you don't just abandon the whole thing. No, you stand at your watch. You have a place to be. And those of you in the military know that everybody's on rotation. You have your time on the watch, and that's when you're, where you're supposed to be. You better not be asleep. You better be awake at the watch. So you get there on your watch and stand there. Don't sit. Don't lie down. Don't take a snooze. Stand at your watch. So you don't have all the answers. Well, we don't always get all the answers when we want them. But stand at your watch. Do what you're supposed to do. That's the posture in which you will get the answers. If you go to sleep, you're not going to get them. If you sit down on the job, you're not going to get them. Because you've already decided that God is not sovereign and He's not holy. And you can do whatever the hell you want to. That's the kind of choice you're making when you don't stand at your watch. So you want answers? Okay, stand at your watch. First of all, do what the Lord told you to do. Get there and stay there and do your duty. Now you're likely to get the answers. If you already don't stand at your watch, you're making the decision that God's character is not what the Bible says it is. So the first thing Habakkuk does, puts his, puts, he not only puts two stakes in the ground about God's theology, he puts his feet on the ground where he's supposed to be doing what he's supposed to be doing. And there are some times, gentlemen, when you go to a worship service and you don't feel like it. And sometimes you come out of the worship service and you say, I didn't get a thing out of that. Let me remind you of something. The primary purpose of your being in a worship service is not what you get out of it. It's what He gets out of it. And He gets something out of your standing on your watch. He gets glory and honor from someone who shows that they're going to wait on Him. And that they're not God, He is. And so we do go through certain motions. Believe me, your wives have gone through it in your sex life. <laughs> you think they were always really aroused every time you made an advance on them? Of course not. They stood their watch. <laughs> At least the faithful ones did. <laughs> and I hope they're listening to this tape. One in particular I can think of. No, you don't always feel like doing your duty. You don't always feel like holding your anger. You don't always feel like being kind to someone because they run kind to you. But you stand your watch while you're waiting for resolution to this relationship. You don't add to the evil. You stand your watch. And that's what Habakkuk says. He says, I will stand at my watch. God, I don't have the answer. I want the answer. But I'll stand here and I'll do my duty while I'm waiting for it. Secondly, I'll look to you, Lord. I've got a lot of places I could go. I've got a lot of books I could read. Evil King Saul went to the witch of Ender. A spiritist to get his answers. You've got a lot of places you can go and try to get your answers. But Habakkuk says, God, I'm going to get my answers from you. I'm going to do what you told me to do. And I'm going to wait until you answer. I'm not, I'm not looking to that fishnet. I'm not going to bow down to another God. I'm not going to look for it in other books. Look, I recommend reading a lot of books. Classic books. But you don't look to other books to get your ultimate answers. You look to one book. 
the book of God. If He spoke and He wrote it down in a book, that ought to be your book. If the God of this universe has revealed His character and His ways and answers to life's most difficult questions, that's my book. And you base your life on it. So you stand your watch, doing your duty, and you look to Him. That means you look to His book and you actually talk to Him. Habakkuk's at least talking to God. Look, you can take a more difficult situation than this. When the disciples were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, they're going to cross the sea because Jesus said, get in the boat and let's go. Jesus was the one who started this whole mission. And then this mighty squall comes, this storm. And Jesus is in the back of the boat, and the only place in the New Testament we're told this, sleeping on a cushion. (laughs) It's unbelievable behavior. Here you have a life-threatening storm, and Jesus is asleep. (laughs) And Peter is afraid for his life. And he goes back and wakes up Jesus. And what does he say? These classic, memorable words. Lord, don't you care? (laughs) Here's the one who's going to die on a cross for them. Who's going to take it in his hands and his feet and his side for Peter. And Peter asked this outrageous question in the midst of his extremity. Don't you care? That's the way we are. It's not about the kingdom of God. It's not about Jesus. It's about moi. (laughs) And when I'm about to die, Lord, don't you care? That's the theology that comes out of my lips. And that's what it did with Peter. But at least you've got to say this about Peter. Give him credit. He at least knew where to go. And he waked up Jesus. Okay? So that's called prayer. He at least knew where to go. And Habakkuk's got some serious complaints. But at least he knows where to go. And he says, I'm going to stand here at my watch and I'm going to look. I'm going to wait for you, God. And I'm expecting you to give me an answer. Because any answer I get in this life, I'm expecting it to come from you. And if that answer doesn't come from you, God, I'll just assume I don't need that answer. But it's a silly question. And I don't need the answer. But this is not a silly question. He's going to get an answer. Because he stood at his watch and he looked to the Lord. Now, God does answer our complaints about his answers. I know that sounds redundant, but it's really true. His answers call some more questions, and then he answers again. Now, there's some things that God doesn't answer, for sure, because a fool is able to ask more questions than a wise man can ever answer. And certainly, we human beings, are in our foolishness, can ask more questions than, than even eternity has time to answer. That's because all of our questions are not good questions. But God will answer those complaints about his answers, that give further revelation about his character and about our, the lives we're supposed to live. And that's exactly what comes out of this. Because Habakkuk sticks to his guns and keeps questioning God, staying faithful to God, but asking tough questions, it's going to reveal more about God's character and it's going to reveal more about Habakkuk's duty, as we shall see. Now, let's look at these first four verses. They're key, the key turning point here because in verse 2, the Lord replies, Here's what he says. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Okay, so the first two verses show us that his answers are revelatory. Take note of it. God is now speaking. He's giving us a revelation. And he says to Habakkuk, write this down, Habakkuk. 
so that other people get it. Make note of it, Habakkuk. Aren't you glad he did? This is, this is given to us through the prophet Habakkuk who got it from the Lord. That's what inspiration means. That what Habakkuk wrote down was inspired by the living God. He breathed it out as the word literally means in, in the Greek, that word in 2 Timothy 3. He breathed it out. He exhaled it as it were. It's God's breath. The Scriptures is God breathing out. And that's exactly what you get here. His answers reveal His character and His will for human beings. The two most important things the Bible gives us. And He says to him, take note of it. This is revelation. And He also says, not only take note of it, but make it known. Make it plain on tablets so that preachers may run with it. (laughs) So that a herald may run with it. So write it down. Make it plain so everybody can understand it. So that all the ones who know of God can run out and shout about it. So gentlemen, whatever we learn today about God in our difficult circumstances is to be plain to us. We're supposed to get it so that we can run out and proclaim it to others. And this world needs it. When you listen to anything on the TV that raises theological questions, and you've noticed they keep coming up a lot more now than they used to on the TV, but the answers are consistently... Uh, not that God doesn't exist. They won't say that on CNN. But what they will say is that God can't control all of history. And that God is good, but He's not all-powerful. So they've taken one of the stakes out of the ground. That's how CNN, that's CNN theology. And you're the ones who are to explain, hold it just a minute, put that stake right back in the ground. Our God controls every moment of history in every way all throughout the universe. Put that stake back in the ground. Ask yourself a deeper question, CNN. You're not asking the right question. The question is, how can God be in control of everything and be good and you be sitting in the the misery that you're in? Why don't you ask the really tough question? That's what a Christian theist asked. And here's the answer. Take note of it, write it down, and tell everybody about it. And wait for its fulfillment. This is the key. Because he says, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Gentlemen, here is the answer. Everybody has what we call a theodicy. That's T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. From two Greek words which simply mean uh, theos is God and uh, dikia is justice. So the justification of God, theodicy. How do we justify God? That's the question of Habakkuk's asking. How do I justify his character? When this is going on, the Christian theodicy, the biblical theodicy can only be understood from the perspective of the end of time. That's going to be the answer we get from God to Habakkuk. Whatever I do right now is an intermediate measure leading up to the end. You have to see the end in order to justify these two stakes in the ground that I'm in complete control and I'm holy. So he says he says something here about the end. He says, uh, uh, it speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. It will prove true when you look at it from the end. Let me give you an example. Turn back to, keep your finger there, and go to Psalm 73. And Asaph is asking the same question in Psalm 73. He's not so much thinking about his own misery. (laughs) He's... uh, He's thinking about the prosperity of the wicked. 
And when he compares himself to all these rich, wicked people, it just drives him crazy. I'm living a good life, God, and I'm, I'm just living an ordinary working man's life, don't have a whole lot of time off, take limited vacations, working hard, barely paying the bills, and just, you know, the outflow is just barely me and the income. And now look over here, and this guy is raising hell and going out and going to, you know, just hooked on pornography, loves it, goes to all the, you know, the sweatshops around, and, and he just does whatever he wants to do, rips people off, turns his account, and he's just flying to Europe, you know, French Riviera, does whatever he wants. He's, he's had four or five beautiful wives, one after the other, and a couple of them at the same time. He just does whatever he wants to do. That's the problem in Psalm 73. He's comparing himself to the prosperity of the wicked. And he says, surely God is good to Israel. You see, he starts off at the same place Habakkuk does. Now, let's, let's drive a stake in the ground. God is good to his people. Okay, I got that one, God. To those who are pure in heart. Okay, so God, you are good to those who are pure in heart. Got that. Now, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So, God, I drove that stake in the ground. But I tell you what, now I was about ready to fall over. <laughs> I was about ready to pull that stake right out of the ground because I was looking at the prosperity of the wicked. I just want you to know my theology is being challenged, God. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They go work out every day and get what they want. They are free from the burdens common to man. They don't struggle. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. That is, they say, yeah, I know there's a heaven. I'm going there. I don't know about everybody else, but I'm going there. And their mouths claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the might, does the most high have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. You see, this is a perspective of someone who's following Jesus. It's miserable, isn't it? Why don't you come be a disciple of Jesus with me and be miserable with me? Be poor and oppressed and marginalized. Miserable. That's the way we're tempted to think. You know, those people over there, look how happy they are. They don't have any problems. That's a bunch of baloney. If you knew them, if you knew their hearts and why they're going through all this rigmarole, why all the travels, why all the money, why all the success, they're trying to cover their misery, basically, if, when you get to know them. And, but the, here the complaining little righteous person uh, continues to go on in his great uh, liturgy here. Verse 13, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. <laughs> so here's the, here's the righteous. Lord, I've just been good, but it's just been, it's been of no value. You know, you haven't paid me back. <laughs> you ever felt that way? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Here's a man who's got a relationship with God and he's complaining because he doesn't have everything in this life that he thinks his wicked neighbor does. And he says to him, it was oppressive to me. Look at verse 17. Here's the key. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. There you have it. It's very confusing, isn't it? When you... Limit your scope to your vacations or the kind of house you live in. Is that my phone or yours? I'm going to turn this thing off. Uh, 
One time someone did call me and I just said, and I just talked to him. <laughs> and then he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm talking to a couple hundred guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Off the phone. Uh, so we measure things by the kind of house we live in, the kind of car we drive, the kind of vacations we have. It's all time bound. And you're not going to understand it, says the psalmist. When you try to compare the prosperity of your life because you follow God, you win all your basketball games because you follow God. I mean, your university team ought to win because you're a Christian. Yeah. And you that's how ridiculous Psalm 73 is. That's basically what he's saying. My team should win their football games because I'm a believer. And I look at these wicked people, and they're winning their football games. And it doesn't make any sense to God. That's what he's saying. And that's how ridiculous it is for you to complain about your cancer and the wicked guy next door doesn't have any cancer. Because you've narrowed your scope. Your little playground is so narrow. Everything's got to work on your playground. And you've forgotten the kingdom and you've forgotten eternity. And the psalmist said, when I entered the sanctuary, I saw how this thing, how this play concludes. Then it, then it made sense to me. No longer did I envy the arrogant. No longer did I want to be in the place of the wicked. No longer did I want to share their future with them. No longer did I want to have what they have. I don't want what they have when I go into the sanctuary of God and I discern their end. And that's basically what God is saying to Habakkuk. Wait! Wait for the end. And you're going to see it. His answers are encouraging because what he's doing in verse 4 is he makes this huge distinction between the righteous and the arrogant. And here's the distinction. See, verse 4, he is puffed up. Who's he? The Babylonian. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Here you have the clarion call through the centuries of the church. The righteous will live by his faith. Going back now to the wicked. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's a drunkard. He is arrogant and never at rest. Arrogant. Always claiming more for himself. Never at rest. Always trying to bring more credit to himself. He is as greedy as the grave. And believe me, the grave is greedy. It wins every time. And like death is never satisfied. Death is never satisfied. I got one dead guy. I want three more. Oh, I got three. I want eight more. I want millions more. I want billions more. And they just keep filling the grave. Death has this voracious. Appetite. It's just the way the Babylonians, just the way the wicked are. They're never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. He's a slave owner. He's the worst kind of human being. So God's making a distinction. And look what he says about the righteous. They will live by their faith. Now, what does he mean here? Two things. The word faith in Hebrew can mean either faith or faithfulness. And in the New Testament, you find them used both ways. Keep your finger there and go over to Hebrews chapter 10, for example, toward the end of your Bibles. This would be on page 1996. Make it 1998. He says in verse 35, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. 
You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And then he goes on into chapter 11 with the great hall of faith to give you example after example of men who lived out faithful lives. They did not shrink back in the face of opposition, in the face of ridicule, in the face of persecution, in the face of losing their own lives. They stood firm. So the writer of Hebrews cites Habakkuk as the answer that we live by our faithfulness. We are faithful to the Lord to the end. And that's one sense in which the word faith is used. It has to do with our faithfulness. Now look in Romans chapter 1, and you'll see another angle on this where the Apostle Paul says in verse 16, this is page 1810, top of the page, Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk. And here's what Paul means in that context. He says, faith is trusting in God for your righteous record before God. In other words, if you're trusting in your own performance, you're going to be severely disappointed when you get to heaven. Like severely disappointed because you'll be numbered among the wicked. Because every human being is born wicked. And you've screwed it up before you were one day old. You were selfish. You, by nature, have a wicked flesh. And if you're depending upon your performance, no matter how much you clean it up on the outside, you're in trouble. Paul says you need a different kind of righteousness. You need a 100% righteousness. You need a perfect righteousness that never fails you, where there's no niche in the armor. Here's what you need. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. When you trust in Him, you get His perfect righteousness for your record. So you want to know what your record in heaven is? It's not those things you've been doing. It's the things that Jesus did recorded in the Gospels. That's your record. By faith. So from beginning to end, you live by faith in Jesus Christ. And he works that argument out in Romans 1, 2, and 3 in particular, and then uses Abraham and David as examples in Romans 4. That Abraham is an example of this. He was a faithful man. Why? Because he trusted in the righteousness of God, given to him, imputed to him by faith. So living by faith has two aspects. One is you trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith to be your record. Secondly, because of that, out of gratitude, you live a life of faithfulness. That's the way you live. So God here is saying, Habakkuk, let me answer a question for you this way. I make a distinction among men. Some are wicked, trusting in their own righteousness. And they go from one wickedness to the next. And they just get worse all the time. That's one group. I'll use them as I want to use them. But that's going to be their end, is that they will be judged. On the other hand, I have my righteous people who get oppressed and get marginalized and get dealt dirty deals and do raise questions like the ones you're going to raise. And I'm telling you, that person 
will win in the end. And he must wait for the end. And he will live by his faith. Gentlemen, there's no other way to live for Jesus Christ in this world but by faith. There's no other way to win in the end but by faith. If you're trying to win in the end by piling up your successes, and you think somehow that accumulatively, if you get enough successes now, well, by the end, man, I've done a lot of good. You lose. The only way you win is trusting in what God provides, the righteousness He provides, and you wait for His answer in the end. And you will live the most righteous life by doing that life that way. So the whole key to the righteous life is to wait. And to believe at the end He's going to resolve it. And of course He shows in these next verses how He does resolve it from verses 6 on. We won't deal with this in great detail. But let's just look at it quickly. He's saying in verses 5 through 19 that his answers are just. The wicked will be punished and tormented for all these things. You see those five woes. Alas, woe, judgment to you. Five times. You find Isaiah uses woes also until finally Isaiah pronounces the ultimate woe on himself when he sees God. Woe to me, he says, for I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. And God nods to the seraph and He picks up a a coal from the fire and singes Isaiah's lips and says, Your sins have been forgiven. Your transgressions are taken away. One of the most beautiful lines in all of Scripture. Because Isaiah had pronounced a woe on himself when he came to understand how wicked he was himself. And he was the most righteous man in all of Jerusalem. And when you understand yourself correctly, you don't start blaming the Babylonians. You start blaming your own flesh. And God says, look, I've already condemned that flesh, but I've not condemned you. And you're mine. And you are going to live because I've given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which was accomplished for your sake. And so the woe is removed from you. But it's not from the righteous. This is the kind of behavior that describes them. And God says, don't think for a moment. I haven't noticed that. Don't think for a moment that that's not going to be dealt with justly. Don't think for a moment that the world is not going to end up being a just place when I come at the end. And so you see these final, this final word that God's answers are final. He reigns and we don't. Look at verse 20. He says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Yes, Habakkuk, God is holy. And He's on the throne, reigning between the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant, ruling the nations and the world. God is not only there, but He is even more importantly on His throne in the holy temple in heaven itself, ruling over all creation. Don't doubt it for a moment, Habakkuk. And when you see all the wickedness in this life, and you see all the injustices, and you see the difference between rich and poor, and you see how the arrogant just go on from one wicked thing to another, and when you in your heart are tempted to envy them, to envy the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked, remember, Habakkuk, I am sovereign, and I am holy, and I'm going to bring things to a holy end, and you will win when you live your life by faith in me. That's the announcement. And he says at the very end, let all the earth be silent before him. So he's basically saying, Habakkuk, I'm not saying you've asked a stupid question. What I'm saying to you is I've given you an answer. And now let's be done with the complaints. And having been done with the complaints, let's get into service. Let's get into worship. 
Let's get into obedience. Let's get into joy. Because Habakkuk, if you believe what I'm saying, you cannot help but rejoice. Because through these sufferings, yes, Israel will have to wait 70 years under the oppression of the Babylonians, but Habakkuk, your letter is going to tell them to wait. Yes, you will suffer for 70 years, three score and ten, it's as long as you live. And you'll wait till the end. But I'm telling you, Habakkuk, I've answered your question. In the end, justice and righteousness and holiness and the glory of God will prevail and the glory of His people will be restored. Habakkuk, I'm telling you. Now, you believe it, Habakkuk. You will suffer with a mystery of joy because you know how things turn out in the end. And that's the key to the Christian life. It's right here in Habakkuk. He's asking the questions we ask. He's asking them in the right way. And he gets them answered. Now let all the earth be silent. When the silence is broken, we're going to find what Habakkuk says in response. That's the kind of response that every one of us needs to learn to make to a God who is sovereign and a God who is good and a God who in the end is going to bring all things to pass just as He said and His people will be vindicated. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for our brother Habakkuk who refused to pull up the stakes from the ground and choose another religion and chose rather to stick with You and to wait for Your answers. Lord, more than anything, we thank You for You and for Your answers. And particularly the answer of Jesus Christ who did solve this problem, who came and took all the sufferings upon Himself, who was not esteemed by men, who had spittle dripping down His face and Nails in his hands and his feet because he took on our sufferings. And he has provided for us a place and a future and a glory that keeps our hearts warm to the things of God. Lord, help us to believe, to be those who live by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.